Salties podcast on this holiday season. I am Dwayne Rollins here in not snow in Toronto, and it can stay that way. White Christmas, I don't care. Montreal, he's got Kevin. I don't know why Montreal's a he, but he has Kevin. And Kevin. we, and he has snow too. A oh. lie. A lie. You can keep it. Keep it. I don't understand. It, it seemed like it's following me because when I was in Toronto uh, two weeks ago now, it was beautiful two days and it snowed when I was leaving, and the snow just followed me and just kept on snowing since then. All right. Well, as I said, I don't understand that those of us that live in a northern climate are not as enamored by the idea of a white Christmas as as those of you who don't necessarily see snow all the time. I love a green Christmas. I would take an 80 degree on the beach Christmas any day of the damn week. It doesn't have to snow for me to open gifts. Anyway, that's enough of that. It's white Christmas when you live in the country or further away. When we live in a city like us. It's never white. It's a gray, dark, dirty Christmas, and it's not the same. Yeah, slush. People that love snow never talk about slush. <laughs> but it Brown just, slush. <laughs> it trickles in just the smallest of crack in your shoes. You thought your shoes were really anti-permeable, uh, whatever that word is. And no, you walk and you, all your feet are wet, and like, you slip and you fall. It, it's not fun. I want to... Green Christmas or a uh, sand Christmas too, Dwayne. Yeah. Well, it's one the one-year anniversary of the ice storm that uh, knocked power out of Toronto for four days last year, too. So You thought that was an ice storm? I was here in 98. That was an ice storm. Uh, actually, I was in Ottawa in 98, so I saw that one, too. But at any rate, no, it was an ice storm. It was pretty bad here. Uh, we, we didn't have power for four days. We, were, we had to leave. We had to flee the city like many other people. But the first night was kind of fun because we didn't know the power was going to go off. It was just cold in our apartment. So we did what any – but there was power on the Danforth, the main street, which meant all the all the pubs were powered. So that's what we did. That was a good night. <laughs> that's right. a good bender. All right. Um, let's get back to the soccer. Uh, all right. We're going to talk about we – got, we got Duncan Fletcher from Vocal Minority on uh, today. We're going to have a Christmas truce uh, festive debate, airing of the grievances, whatever you want to call it. We're going to have a debate about Toronto FC in our interview segment. Uh, that will come right after this. After that, we're going to come back. We're going to talk about the, N- NES, sorry, the NESL. You caught yourself again. You caught yourself. The NCAA draft, uh, the super draft – uh, maybe I'll even explain why it's called the Super Draft, which is a hilarious name. Yeah, but it's, it, there's nothing super about it. At any rate, I, I do know the story, but it is fun just to make fun of it. We're going to talk about the Super Draft. We're going to talk about Kyle Lauren. We're going to talk about the odds of getting a good player in there because uh, the, the Canadian teams have some some selections in that draft that, that might excite people. Uh, you know, Montreal's drafting pretty high up there. Yeah, Toronto has a lot of picks in the top uh, top eleven, um, so there's there's some chance there. So we'll talk about the odds and uh, that uh, Canadian prospect that may go number one. And then in our final segment, we have uh, well, we broke it in the middle of the interview. We pre-recorded the interview with Duncan. Daniel Henry is going to West Ham, and that's going to stun and shock a lot of people that think. Daniel Henry is as useful as a cat on the field. Those people were wrong. They always were. I'm sorry that I'm saying it that bluntly, but this kind of justifies that uh, that position, don't you think, Kevin? Uh, yeah, going to my favorite London, my second favorite London team. Yeah, this is now my London APL team. Screw you, TFC, and your marketing efforts. Uh, we'll talk a bit about Vancouver's DP search as well, Pedro Morales, and the impact did something too. So anyway, Kevin, let's just take a quick break. Bring Duncan on. We'll have that debate. Welcome, newcomers. The tradition of Festivus begins with the airing of grievances. I got a lot of problems with you people. Now you're going to hear about it. And welcome back to the Two Solitudes' first annual Festivus airing of grievances about TFC. Uh, First of all, Dwayne, welcome back. And uh, Duncan Fletcher, how you doing, Duncan? I'm not too bad. Thanks for having me on. It's our pleasure. First of all, gentlemen, let me ask you about probably the biggest elephant in the room this offseason. Is Bespachenko the man for the job? Duncan. Um, I am going to go with no here. I mean, it's ever since he came along, I mean, he came with a, a reputation of, oh, you know, he's really good with 
you know, all this backroom stuff. He knows MLS and he can work with these people. And it seemed like that reputation was here and everyone kind of bought into it. But do have we really seen that? In It's probably too early to judge anything. And it's difficult to really know exactly what decisions like he made or were more... It was Ryan Nelson's decision, but the the one decision that is you know, definitively yeah, this is absolutely for Bezbachenko, which is obviously firing Nelson and installing Greg Vanny. Um, you know, I, I just can't really get behind that as the the right thing to do, and just the way it was done and you know, where TFC ended up. It's like you know, that the one big thing he's done shows, yeah, that's that's not good. Uh, what decision would you say that was the worst of uh, Bezbachenko, in your opinion, Duncan, this season? Um, well, I think, as I say, it's uh, the firing of Ryan Nelson. I mean, I don't... The results didn't really justify that uh, to me. I mean, you know, they were still in a playoff place. There were games in hand, an easy schedule coming up, players coming back from injury. I mean, I would put money, really, on Ryan Nelson of ending the season better than... Uh, Greg Vanny and you know, the full details of exactly why have never really fully come out it seems but you know I mean, I definitely kind of think part of the reason was Bezpachenko didn't want Brian Nelson to make the playoffs for whatever reason they didn't see eye to eye and he didn't want Brian Nelson to succeed and then he's stuck with him and he becomes unfireable so you know, he sort of creates a bit of a drama and then boom he's gone and now it's You know, the, the Bezbachenko and Vanny show, I guess they're both on the same page. Uh, you know, maybe that will end up being for the best. We obviously don't know, but it's the the way the whole thing went down is just not doesn't inspire confidence. And, and this type of pro and con format, obviously, Duncan, you're gone <laughs> against Vanny, which brings me to you, Dwayne, and I'm very interested to see which pro argument you're going to give me for uh, Mr. Bezbachenko. Okay, well, before I before I get going into this this too deep, I want to make something abundantly clear. When I argue for Bezbachenko, as I do many, 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 I could go on a few more many's here times on Twitter, uh, usually with a mutual friend of uh, Duncan and I's that may be Scottish, so we'll just leave that while I'll up the moment. At any, <laughs> at any rate, um, what I'm arguing isn't that Bezbachenko is this magician, this wonderful GM that has come in and is going to instantly solve everything. What I'm arguing is that Bezbachenko is dead, lukewarm average. I know that's not very inspiring, but in TFC's history, we have never had dead, lukewarm average before, and Bezbachenko is that. He does stuff like subtly do the types of manipulation that everyone in the league does around around the drafts rather than just be this lone wolf barking from we the north up in the mountains or something. There's no mountains in Toronto. I don't know what I'm talking about there. But at any rate, he's not a lone wolf within MLS. He, he sort of does the system. He works the system in all those same ways. And again, this isn't special stuff, but it's there. And I have no confidence whatsoever that this organization, MLSE, would hire anyone even remotely Uh, the same if they had to do it again. In fact, I, I, I know what they do in my mind because I followed this team long enough. I, I can kind of understand their thinking. And one of the greatest criticisms, and we'll get to this in a, in a bit, is they're not doing enough to be to be local and to be communicative to the uh, to the rest of the local things. So they're probably going to hire like the head of some academy that's in Toronto that's not going to have any MLS experience either because I know that that's the, the, one of the criticisms people have is he doesn't have experience but let's face it, this is their MO, this is what they're going to do, they're just going to hire another person without any experience so why in hell would you fire him now? He's the right man because I don't have any trust that they're going to hire anyone better. Do you think it's necessary, Dwayne, in 2014, going in 2015 next week, that a MLS team has an MLS experience in management? We've seen Toronto try it for eight years now. Montreal tried it with, uh, with folks, and even Vancouver, you could say, tried it with folks that had no MLS experience. Do you think it's not necessary for a team like TFC to surround itself with a management that is proven in Major League Soccer, or at least knows the inner and out working of the league? It should be, you'd think, yes. But however, if you look at the MLS overall, uh, it's kind of a cult in a lot of ways when you come to management. Like there's this idea that you have to be MLS and have to be – it's like kind of this American mentality that comes out. And it's a little hard for us to stomach up here because 
oh, we're not American. However, if you look at like Patkey in New York and, and just even these guys, they put up Christ was a player before he came in. These guys that have had success, they often have come in as, as complete amateurs before that. Like Christ is a perfect example. He's a guy that, that in the first few years in Salt Lake wasn't really doing that well. In fact, those of us that were around for TFC in 2009 remember uh, when TFC practically eliminated them uh, with two weeks to go in the regular season, only to see them win the MLS Cup a few weeks later. And that's sort of what propelled uh, Lagerway and Kreis as these, these magic magicians that could clear everything, when in reality there was a lot of luck involved in their early days. So in that particular way, I mean, Toronto is just really following the model of the rest of the league to bring these guys in, like Vanny, that was a former player that doesn't have a lot of experience, Bezbachenko, that his greatest experience is that he was in the front office understanding how stupid and crazy and insane and un- unmanageable the MLS rules are, so he should therefore be able to manipulate them. Like, that's MLS thinking in a nutshell. All right. Uh, to, to pick a winner of that first debate, I have to say... Even if Dwayne, I have to agree with you that he's the best of the worst, it still doesn't make him good. So, Duncan, I have to give it to you. Oh, oh excellent. <laughs> I, I, do th- I do think the best argument for Bezbachenko is just uh, stability. So it's like, uh, he's here, so we may as well keep him. But, you know, Nelson didn't get that argument, did he? So. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that brings us to a, p- a point that Dwayne mentioned. Is TFC doing enough to repair the damage that it had with its supporters, the community itself, the league, the sponsors? Are they doing something to mend those bridges? I'll start with Duncan. Um, I, well, I'm going with the uh, the pro side of this. and I think I mean, a lot of bridges were very burned. There was a lot of damage done, really. So it's in a lot of ways, it's going to be kind of impossible to really make it up. So, I, mean, I think recently they've they've been doing as much as could be reasonably expected. Um, I mean, for example, obviously you mentioned supporters there. You know, they've kept their ticket prices. They've held the line on that again. They didn't increase them for renewals. So, you know, that's a yeah, that's a, a good thing. And they obviously, do plenty in the community. I think the the new stadium is going to be. You know, I definitely have my doubts about it, but you know, I think there's going to be a lot of people that will see that as a good thing, I mean, especially at the, the business community who now have all sorts of restaurants and clubs that they can, uh, you know, take their clients to and get all the tax-deductible goodness from. Um, and as well, you know, I'm sure the the advertising community loves TFC, just for the fact that they'll sponsor everything. So, you know, that's a, a bridge they've built there, you know. This debate brought to you by Toastmasters. <laughs> and Dwayne, uh, why aren't TFC doing enough this offseason? Well, yeah, this is a, a bit of a complicated one, and I, I, I don't think that we all, any of us, really know the full answer. However, I will argue that that they could do more. Um, there is a lot of damage to overcome from the first few years, and they absolutely were a disaster in the first few years with this. Uh, the TFC Academy got off to a slower start than it needed to because they they had a, an advertorial sort of uh, relationship with the, with other uh, academies in the in the region. Now, when I say that, I'm in no means, no way, am I justifying the behavior in 100 percent of the way of, of the rest of the of the community, the soccer community in this company. I get a little bit of a uh, you know kick sometimes when I hear them talk about how TFC isn't. Uh, is underutilizing the massive talent in the GTA, and they just need to have us in here because if they did that, then well, pay, we'd uh, we'd be doing better. Well, yeah, of course, that's because Canada is doing so well internationally. That would be obvious, right? Like we obviously been producing great players, and the fact that the TFC Academy only lost one game this year. Well, you know, anyway, alas. Um, however, that said, where they should, they need a guy to sort of work on that full time, and they haven't made that hire yet. They've they've they haven't hired a liaison role to sort of consistently be out there. A Canadian should be someone that has deep roots in the community that isn't necessarily running the academy, but is working primarily to build relationships with other academies. I don't know why they haven't had to hired someone like that. I think they absolutely need to. I think it's glaringly obvious that they need to. So for that, I don't think they're doing enough. I think that they're too much in the MLS bubble too, and they're not recognizing the Canadianness of this club. Uh, that is on the CSA level. They're not doing enough to work with the CSA, in my mind, to fight for Canadian domestics, um, just to fight for the uniqueness and the unique challenges of Canada. They're just, they're kind of just operating as their own lone wolf again. Uh, so there, I think that they're failing there. And on a league-wide level, the damage to overcome in terms of the way they treat people, 
Well, here's where I well criticize that Nelson firing. All that did is reinforce this idea that TFC is a cesspool where you're just going to be treated horribly. So that was the biggest mistake they made. I agree with Duncan there. Was that firing? I just slightly agree on, on what it means, and I think that this is where it really hurts. It, it's in that league relationship level. Well, and I have to agree that communication channels are very important in the development of players, and those channels need to be open. So, Dwayne, I have to say, I think Toronto needs to do more, so I have to side with you on that one. Woohoo! <laughs> this brings us to a, a very major part of 2014 for TFC, and who's to blame for it? And to put it in Christmas term, who's to blame for the Dufo fiasco? I'll start with you, thank you. Oh, dear. <laughs> All right. Um, sorry, did you say start with Dwayne? Or? Yeah, I'll start with you, Duncan. Okay. What, oh, do you, what do you think who's to blame for uh, the whole situation with Defoe and his present situation as well? Um, I'm going to go with putting the blame more on Jermaine Defoe. I mean, you look at... you know, he, he just never really seemed to really be into this whole MLS thing and uh, even like before when you know he had the injury and was in Britain for a month around the uh, the trading window and all that sort of thing and even before then he was always hopping back on flights back to England and that sort of thing and you know it seems that once the the World Cup came and went it's you know the the motivation wasn't there and you know he looked a lot less interested on the field and you know, a lot less able to Forgive the, the what's the word I'm looking for here? The, the lack of talent of his uh, of teammates and everything is often like a lot more frustrated. So mm-hmm. I think you know, by the end of it, he it seemed like he'd completely soured on the uh, the experience. I mean, there are certain you know players that have come over. You know, obviously like Thierry Henry just retired. He's a very good example. But you know, he actually seemed to like embrace the whole MLS thing and really tried to make it work and. I, I don't get that that effort was ever really there from uh, from the I mean, you know, there's obviously you know, problems. Uh, you know, I think some of the things that the club is putting out there about Defoe, you know, potentially aren't all that helpful nowadays. But uh, yeah, I think I'm definitely still more. Uh, you know, I wouldn't blame TFC for this one. It's more Jermaine Defoe. And Dwayne, uh, why is the club responsible for the way Defoe was handled and was? trade and was actually just the way it happened this season. Well, let's get one thing straight. Jermaine Defoe is 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 an idiot in a lot of ways. <laughs> Nicely put, yeah. Okay. <laughs> However, it's the club's responsibility to understand that he's an idiot in many ways. side idiots, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So they didn't do their due diligence on this. They, they really, I, like Christ, I could have done my due diligence just by I don't know, Googling Jermaine Defoe Portsmouth or something, right? Like, I mean, come on. Like, this guy is a guy that just has a history of this kind of stuff. And, yes, he's immensely talented. He's a shiny thing. And Lewicki and, to a certain amount, Toronto, like shiny things. So it's this thing is in here. It's, it's our Hail Mary. Boom, it's rescued everything. And, I mean, God, things were bad last year, so that's not – ignore the marketing need here. But they've, they've basically prioritized marketing by – bringing in a, a well-known Premier League name. And this market loves well-known Premier League names because that's what, it's not unique, Toronto. There's a lot of parts in, in MLS that do, like that those names are always going to, Frank Lampard going to New York. Like, I mean, even though Villa's probably a better player in a lot of ways, uh, particularly for MLS, I think, long run. But at any rate, they that that kind of need for marketing overshadowed the need in the fields. They absolutely needed a striker of that quality, but they could have found him elsewhere, could have found him for less money, could have found him with a lot better attitude, and, and here we are. So that's ultimately why I think it is the club's fault, even though I think Defoe needs to get a little more blame too. Um, I have to agree with you, Dwayne, because uh, when you hire an idiot, who's to blame, the person hiring or the hiree? And I have to say, with experience in life, uh, usually it's the person who I hired them. So, uh, Dwayne, you got that one. Mm. Sorry, Duncan. Well, it's, it's fair. I mean, I definitely get where you're coming from, really. I mean, you know, they, they gave him surely enough, you know, it's, you're giving him this much money, and that's got to be enough to you know, motivate and keep him interested, you'd think. And when he was actually motivated, when he was working that first half of the season, that looked like a, a great buy. So, uh, you know, as I, I, I can uh, definitely see where you're coming from, though, that... Uh, is definitely due diligence to be done that, that looks like it wasn't. 
brings us to our fourth question, which uh, Duncan mentioned a little bit of it. Speaking of lack of talent that the, the players with the four were playing, brings us to the core of the team, the core of TFC, and the core that managers keep talking about day in and day out. Is that core even good enough moving forward? And uh, let's start with Dwayne on that one. Do you think that core of players it should be all the hoopla that everybody's talking about? But it kind of depends how you define good enough. But uh, I'm going to define good enough by the off-mentioned, like, yeah, know. yeah, by the off-mentioned low-hanging fruit of playoffs in the Eastern Conference of Major League Soccer against <laughs> two expansion teams next year. I think that within that context, that the core is just adequate enough that they can build on it. You take a player like Mark Bloom, and I'm going to use Mark Bloom as, as the, the ultimate example here. And you, no, he's not anything that's all that special. He's a nice guy. Uh, his, his wife, I, who follows me on Twitter, seems lovely. Uh, there's, you know, it, it seems like a nice little story, right? So we all kind of like Mark Bloom, but is he talented enough? Eh, he's kind of just there. He's kind of just MLS average. But we've had a lot of Mark Blooms in this city over the years, right? And we often, after one year, go, hey, he's not that good, and throw him aside, and we go fishing, blah, 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 and we rein in another Mark Bloom who's not used to his teammates, and his effectiveness isn't at the same level. So this is my argument of why the core is good enough, even though they do need to add to it, is that they need that familiarity so that they can build upon it, so that they can grab sixth place, damn it, and we can have this false love of the fact that we made the playoffs. And Duncan, explain to me why do you think that the core of that team is not what they should be looking for? Um, well, I think you know, what Dwayne was saying there, I would agree with. I think for Mark Bloom, there's massive potential for him to be like 2015's version of 2011 Dan Gargan. So, you know, popular player gets a raise all of a sudden expectations are raised and without his game really changing all that much people will all of a sudden start looking at him and think mm, yeah he's not all that good um so i think that's definitely a chance for that and you know i do in a way kind of agree with Dwayne that you know, we should probably you know we shouldn't be looking to blow things up and start over again you know a little bit of stability and sort of building around this call would be a good thing but I, I just don't get that it's really as good as people are trying to say. I mean, if, you know, I feel like uh, Bezbachenko and Vani or Michael Bradley, whoever, keep referring to it, a great core, and we have by no means uh, a great core. Um, and we've got an average pair of MLS goalies. There's no real problem there. They're not great, but which, uh, bigger problems. Defense-wise, Justin Morrow, no problem with. Caldwell, he's, is he getting all the bits? Uh, you know, Haglund and Bloom, eh, you know, they're okay-ish. Uh, midfield, obviously, Michael Bradley's good, but, like, Osorio you know, didn't really you know, move on as anyone would have hoped last year, I think, and some Kyle Becker doesn't really seem like much. Then you, know, you get to the windows, Jackson and Oduro, it's like, eh, it's okay. I mean, a lot may depend on exactly what we end up with as far as our DPs go, you know, whether Joe Beto is back or not, or you know, who they get to replace the foe and that sort of thing. Um, I mean, you know, there's going to be high-end pieces have to be added in, and that can like drag everything up. But just the basic sort of core that's there, it's like, mm, yeah, it's it's not good enough for them. I mean, I think you know probably the the depth of the team says so like you know players 20 to 30. It's probably you know it's a good average MLS sort of depth. No problem there, and mm-hmm. we've got some a few good players. But they say from you know the spots are like five to fifteen in the roster. Just yeah, it just just isn't really good enough. I mean, I wouldn't advocate just get rid of everyone and start again because you know it's very unlikely that you're going to be able to improve every position. So you know you may as well hope for improvement by a familiarity. Um, but yeah, right now it's it's not good enough. It's not a great call by any means. Uh, and I had to agree with you, Duncan, on that one, uh, because excellent. No, no, it's true. Because not just because I want to make it side, but because as well that uh, when the result hasn't been there in the past, sometimes you have to change stuff to continue. The layman's definition of insanity, right? And sometimes uh, when you change everything in the management, you do need to change the rest as well to to make that train go in the same direction. In which then can just compare it to other teams, in, even within the Eastern Conference. It's 
you know, it doesn't stand out as anything good. So it is what it is. It is not quite good enough. It may potentially be good enough depending on what improvements can be made between now and the start of the season. It may be good enough to get into like you know fifth or sixth and scrape into the playoffs. But you know, yeah. All right, that brings us to our last question. And having yes or no or pro and con question, I want to let left the last question open ended, and, and kind of like a. A glimmer of hope and a gloom and doom at the same time. Uh, what is, do you think, the biggest strength of TFC and their biggest weakness in getting, like, heading into the season next year? And I'll start with you, Dwayne. Uh, what do you think that it's the the biggest weakness and their biggest strength, which might be a little harder to find, but what do you think that they are heading into uh, 2015 MLS season? Well, I think that the first thing that I need to remind everyone is the TFC had 42 points last year, not four. Um, and, and I, I say that to me, that if you look at the reaction, there's this sort of, it sounds like they're coming out of the 2011 season again in a lot of people's minds. And look, the last end of the season was bleak in, sense of the, of, of, in the sense that they, they just, they struggled and they fell off a cliff like they're out to do. But I think that that had a lot to do with the injuries. It had a lot to do with the Defoe situation. So if they, they can handle the Defoe situation. I would actually argue, ironically, that Defoe is their greatest strength right now. Not so much the fact that he's Jermaine Defoe and he's going to come back and score a buttload of goals. A buttload of goals? A bucketload of goals is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, it's <laughs> a little bit more than a buttload, yeah. Yeah, and uh, it, it's more that he's an asset. And he's a huge asset that they're going to get a lot of money for. And they're going to get – they did get some money. We got They got funds from uh, Vancouver there. We all love funds. I don't know what that means exactly, but there's probably some allocation involved. And uh, with the recent news of uh, hopefully, fingers crossed, uh, Daniel Henry getting a work uh, permit in, in the UK today, uh, hopefully they'll get some more allocation there. I imagine that's the deal there. It's MLS. We're not going to know ever exactly what it is, but there is a lot of resources they can use on the market in January to March to get things done. Um, the other great advantage that they have going in is that this is because of MLS's stupidity, stupid wealth. Uh, the, one of the richest teams in the league. They don't probably deserve it. MLSC doesn't deserve to be as rich as they are. They really don't. However, they are. Um, and partly because we go to Kevin and I, we went to Real Sports and we dropped a lot of money in one afternoon, right? And that's yep. why MLSE and is and why I bought a twelve dollar two ounce beer at the yeah, you know what I mean? Part it's, of the problem, Dwayne. You're part of the problem. <laughs> I am part of the problem. Aren't we oh. all part of that problem though? Yeah. But, <laughs> but the suggestion is that they're going to add a DP spot in the CBA. So there's more money to spend in. MLSE, they will spend it because that's what they do to shut us all up. And then they make more money off of our beer. So that's kind of where their their biggest advantage is going to the season. And eventually they're going to become so rich uh, in and above the Columbus crews of the world out there. And there's going to be enough changes in the rules that eventually, they surely to God, they'll be able to get the playoffs in this league. So that's the great advantage of that. The biggest weakness they have going into next year is – Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment. <laughs> Duncan, uh, what do you think is Toronto FC's biggest th- strength and its uh, deepest weakness? Um, I do kind of agree with Dwayne. So the, the strength there, it is just you know, the ability that they, they have to throw money at the solution. You know, surely at some point that has got to work out even briefly. Um, I think Kind of looking at it from a different angle, just that within the current roster, I'd say, you know, so the the biggest strength is like, Michael Bradley should have a, a very good year. I think you know last year there was obviously he was coming off the the season in Italy, and then he had a bit of an injury. There was the World Cup, so yeah, you know, we only sort of briefly saw in like little patches here or there what Bradley could do. And I think you know there's a, a big asterisk to this because we actually need to figure out okay what exactly is. Michael Bradley's position. What is he? What are we going to ask him to do? But um, I think he should have a, a very good uh, year next year, um, which will obviously uh, help. Weaknesses, you know, I mean, the the defense just looks you know kind of alarming right now. I mean, obviously, if Daniel Henry, whether he goes to West Ham or goes to Cyprus, who knows exactly? But you know, it's, it's a very just good been confirmed as we speak here. that he's going to West Ham. Just so to all TFC. And West Ham fans right now, his work permit just got uh, approved in, in England. So wow. in January, he's in going to uh, West Ham. So he's in London. Yeah. That, made me, that made me smile. <laughs> yeah, that's fantastic news for Daniel Henry. I mean, that, I don't know, that whole thing just seems like a joke. That just seems to make a whole mockery of the whole concept of 
you know, the work permit and qualifications necessary. I mean, he, he wasn't even in Cyprus. And that all seems particularly ridiculous, but hey, you know, good for Daniel Henry. I think uh, you know, that should end up being a, a very good move for him. Um, so yeah, okay, I guess we can officially fully confirm he's gone and then it's according to Kristen jack so it's a pretty pretty reliable source fair enough yeah um yeah again again we're mentioning that mark bloom and nick haglund's i feel like towards the end of last season he seemed to his game seemed to look worse especially i think after greg vanny took over which is a bit alarming caldwell's getting on a bit with age i think there's a lot of question marks and reinforcements needed uh uh, as far as the the team itself goes, I would go with uh, the the defense as the main bit that worries me right now. And I would have to, for this tie-breaking result of a question, I would have to say, Duncan, I agree with you. And that gives you ah. the winner of this uh, famous... I was going to say Festivus as well. It could be Christmas. It could be the Eve of Christmas. It could be Hanukkah. It could be whatever. Next. Yeah, it could be fixed. Too. Fixed. <laughs> it's fixed, man. It's fixed. Possible. Okay. Declan Hill. I'm calling Declan Hill. <laughs> All right. Another reason no, you can't, we can't go back now. Nah, it's can't reverse this. I'm sticking with it. <laughs> Duncan, another reason we wanted to have you on the show today is to talk of, to, for you to talk to us about your brand new website and the evolution of the Yorkies and all that and the continuation of the podcast. Why don't you explain to us and talk to us about your new project? Um, yeah, thanks. Uh, basically, just uh, kind of put it out there to the world probably about a week ago, but uh, the vocal minority, it's uh, not uh, no longer just the podcast. There is now the, uh, we've gone into the blog as well. Um, that can be found at uh, vocalminority.ca, uh, much easier address. Um, but yeah, it's basically uh, myself and uh, Kristen Knowles, who both used to work for, uh, to write for Waking the Red, and then uh, Tony, uh, Tony Walsh and Mark Hinckley from the Yorkies. Basically, you know, the four people that have been doing the podcast for a year or so now just, uh, yeah, decided why not you know, go a little further with this and actually uh, move into the uh, the blog as well then. So it's going to be you know a lot of the things that you saw, uh, you know, if you ever sort of read the Yorkies, a lot of the you know, things are there, like the starting 11 every Monday, you're going to be seeing that sort of thing. And then uh, you know, as well, you know, some of the things that we got uh, to wake into red, it's not just, uh, you know, uh, like opinion, like editorial articles. And then you know, we're, we're just you know, trying to not take the whole thing too seriously, really. I think there's a, a lot of things about TFC that it's just best not to take seriously. So uh, that's, <laughs> if, if you like some, some cynicism and, and fun making with your uh, TFC, then uh, the vocal minority .ca, uh, that should work for you, I think. Duggan, thanks a lot for joining us on this uh, glorious and first edition, uh, probably the last, of the Festivus <laughs> airing of grievances. Uh, and I want to wish you, uh, from mine and from Dwayne's perspective, a great uh, happy holidays, uh, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, uh, great Festivus, and whatever else you can might be uh, fest- yeah. being able to be festive about. All right, well, thank you. Uh, same to you guys, and thanks for having me on. All the bells are ringing out, and it's Christmas. And welcome back. Uh, thanks, Dunk, for joining us. The Vocal Minority Podcast, uh, I, I, what I love about the Vocal Minority Contest, particularly about Duncan, if you listen to it long enough, is Duncan finds the line that we're not really supposed to cross, and he often uh, rides it like a horse, uh, whipping it. And, uh, yeah, there's a funny story about uh, Greek Town. We'll just leave it at that. Um, at any rate, I know it's a funny podcast. You should listen to it. And it, it's just, it's a lot of, you know, look. I do, and I do disagree on a lot of the aspects of TSC that legitimately, uh, not to the point that I, you know, legitimately dislike him or something like that. So I obviously have had him on twice, so I don't. But uh, we do disagree, and there's a different perspective there. It's a little bit more um, cynical, I think, at times, and I don't mean cynical in a negative way. Just it's a more critical, I guess, is what I meant to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, it's a different thing, but they do it with a sense of humor too. Uh, a lot of sort of outtakes and some fun little bits on that, and it's more. It's a different aesthetic than what we do. Uh, it's, 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 it, it 
we do Canada too, but it's. I think it. It's. You don't need to listen to one and not the other. Is what I'm saying. You can listen to both. It's fine. We. we well, you both. have to listen to both. Yeah. To. Do that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. What am I talking about now? Oh yeah, the draft, the super draft, Kevin. The super, super draft. What's super about it? You mentioned the story before in the intro of how I call it super draft, and I don't know that story. And I have to say, I'm quite intrigued of who decided to call it super draft or how it happened. It's just interesting to me because it's not super. It started in 2000. Okay, um, that's why super was a good word in 2000. Yeah, but at that point, it's not a marketing thing. It, well, it is and it isn't. But at the time, they used to have because it's MLS and they like to make things complicated. They used to have several different drafting mechanisms, as they still do, that would bring players into the league. And so, in 2000, they combined all of those different drafts that they had into one single draft, and they needed to name it something. And because they were taking a lot of drafts. A lot of little drafts, and making them into one big draft. They called it the Super Draft, and thus is the name. But now it is so hilarious because people go, it's the Super Draft. <laughs> Everything is awesome. It's a Super Draft. Everything is cool when you're drafting to MLS. When to you're make... drafting players we're never going to see. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Good rhyming. <laughs> yeah, it's just, no. So that's that's your that's that's why it's called Super Draft. In case anyone really cared, but it's more fun to just think that they think it's super because <laughs> it's MLS. Anyway, uh, th- that's just super. All right. So the Impact have the third pick. Uh, yeah. Toronto has three picks in the top eleven. Uh, uh, just on that, on the third pick, you know what I have to say? At least when Toronto finished last, usually they had the first pick, right? Montreal yeah. finishes last, and of course, that year there's two expansion teams coming in the league. Yeah, well, when, the last time Toronto had the first pick overall, they, they ended up trading it. So there you go. Interferral could have been, um, Interferral was the consensus number one, and uh, they made the trade to New England, and uh, Interferral is now a regular starter. For- oh, you mean, you mean the, the guy who brings his team really far into the playoff and up until to play LA, to lay down against LA in the final? Yeah. Uh, in fairness, I'd well say this. Andrew Farrell wasn't really a player that TFC needed at that time. Um, although you yeah, could they always... had Donnell Henry. Well, Farrell's more <laughs> fullback, but sure. at any rate, uh, whatever. It's it is what it is. I'm going to give you some numbers on the on the, the super draft, Kevin. And uh, this is a bit of a to be serious now for a second. The, every January, I shouldn't say every January, but uh, the last few Januarys, every other January, it's been. I've done a pretty. Um, in depth is the word I'm looking for study of the super draft to look statistically speaking what you might expect and what I've done is I've tried to to label each pick um, either exceptional good uh, below average or a failure and uh, I do that by looking at the amount of uh, lifetime appearances that they've had in MLS compared to what you should expect at that position and how I've identified an exceptional MLS player is an exceptional pick I've identified is simply getting a regular career MLS player because you can't really objectively quantify whether a player is a superstar or just average, but you can objectively quantify whether they're a player that contributes to the field simply by looking at how often they play, right? Yeah. So, so the numbers I used, and in, in I, I will link this out. It's, I linked it out yesterday on my feed, but I'll do it again today. Um, any player that played more than 75% of the games that he was involved in during – so 75% of the games each year for his MLS career would be qualify as an exceptional pick. So uh, you have to, play, have to play three quarters of your team's games because injuries happen, suspensions happen, whatever. And not just that, just the amount of game played in the season with all the outside competition. Sometimes it's uh, playing 30-something games. That's a lot to ask for one player too. Yeah, so th- that's what I consider an exceptional pick in the draft. So that using that number and, and the other side, it was less than like players that barely contributed are, are failures, right? And like then the there, player who never played, like, never <laughs> played, or only played like three, four games, right? And then yeah. went to the NHL. So using those numbers, and I, I tracked every draft from two thousand on. Um, and so in two thousand, you know, seventy five percent of the games is a lot of games. If they played a ten year career, right? Or if they play a two year career, it's only out of 60 games, right? Anyway, if you were drafted in the 1-5 position in the first round, and these are first round only, I didn't look beyond the first round, 43.3% of players drafted in positions 1-5 to in the first round of the MLS Super Draft end up playing 75% of their team's games or the team that they play for games over the course of their career. And that's an important distinction. I 
I'm not punishing the player for the club that they were drafted by stupidity for trading him on. It's just looking at that player and that pick at that time was was worth it. It's the, there was an exceptional player there. Anyway, yeah, even if he he bloomed with another team, he actually became a player, so the pick is still valid. That's yeah, what you said. Cool. Yeah, yeah. I'm not. I I did. I also in this study went on to look at what teams did best at this. But at any rate, uh, 28.3% of players drafted six to ten. Uh, so from the six pick on, the drop is considerable. More than 10% drop. Six to ten, they go on to be exceptional. And after the tenth pick, Kevin, it's twelve point five percent. So the drop is remarkable in that first round. Uh, it even gets a little bit uh, interesting too. When I look at the other side of the coin, the failures, eleven point six percent of top five picks end up being a failure. But if you take the fifth pick out of that, so only look at picks one, two, three, and four, it's only zero point five percent. So that fifth pick, those top four, have a, <laughs> have a story historically been pretty close to well they're they're 50 50 proposition did it get exceptional but you're pretty much always going to get a player that's going to play a bit in the top four picks but after that it drops so that tells me that in any given super draft there are only historically speaking statistically speaking kevin there are only four players that are sure things pretty much sure things out of those four players is about they have, what, a 60-40 chance of being exceptional and the rest are going to be a success but not necessarily an impactful player, right? Yeah. You're looking at about... Like two superstars players. and two uh, uh, grinders or two journeymen, you could say. Yeah. And there's other players that come out of the draft everywhere. Yeah, but, you know, obviously, there's outliers. Every time I put these numbers out there, someone will point out some draft that... Uh, <laughs> uh, oh, I thought you remember in 1998, yeah. the guy who was drafted in like the 20th round scored five goals and made his team the playoffs. Yeah, gotcha. darts. It's darts, guys. Like, they hit a dart. There's no... Uh, anyway. All right, so the... the like, even a broken clock is right twice a day. So. Yeah. All right. In terms of failures, to move on to, to finish the numbers here, uh, you got 31.6% of the 6 to 10 picks are, are failures, so almost a third of players drafted after 6 on, because the, the numbers from 11 plus are 31.2, so they're almost identical. So almost one-third of players drafted in the Super Draft after the 6th pick after the fifth pick, I should say, end up never playing. This is first round only, guys. If I extend it to the whole draft, you're looking at something like 50% or 60% of the players drafted never touch the field. This draft is nothing like the NHL draft. A lot of Canadian observers always sort of, they get upset when draft picks are traded. Uh, Even they hear that we're first round draft pick player traded for a journeyman and they lose their mind because in the NHL, that would be absurd. But in MLS, when you look at these numbers, it's not absurd really what you're looking for in the super draft Kevin is not so super it's kind of you're looking for the mediocre draft and that wouldn't be very good marketing uh, no and it really puts the emphasis on why all the teams are putting a lot of resources in the academy system yeah absolutely because it's a crapshoot at best even a crapshoot you get better odds than 50-50 to get, to get a good player and yeah the academy at least you control what they know and you can control the basic or whatever I totally agree yeah However, there are some players out there, so you do want to do your homework. And I think that, uh, you know, I was talking to some people before. If you look at this, uh, if you look at what they can do, what a strategy to do when you have a lot of picks in the first round like Toronto, and you're not in the top five like Toronto, that's the funny thing. Like, they have a lot of picks, but they all kind of come in that second range, so they're, they're a little bit better than they would be if they were real deep, but they're still not great. Really, the most success you find often is to find just guys that are plumbers that can play a role. And to do that, you're sort of just looking at athletes. You're looking for the biggest, strongest kid that you can get out there and hope that your soccer people, your technical people can, can frame him so that he can play a specific role to give you a little bit of value. You're looking – like even look at Toronto's draft last year. Like Hagland and Lovitz are both guys that are never going to be stars in this league. But they were able to get a role out of them. They were able to get a role out of Lovitz because he can add some width. He was he's quick and he's got a few skills here and there that they can highlight amongst his other weaknesses. And they just were able to use him in a certain role. That's kind of what you're looking for. You just have to sort of hedge your bats and try and figure out the best way that you can utilize these these warm bodies that you're going to bring in. Um, Hagman was a little bit better. He was drafted a little bit higher, but he's still kind of just a guy uh, that's physical. It's got a you know he's tall and he's strong and he can sort of you know, work with the team to, to learn some of the technical skills. And, and, you know, we saw when Hagelin was leaned on a little bit more down the stretch that there's some holes in that game still, but he is still a player that can contribute. So that's kind of what you should hope for heading into that game. Um, 
we'll talk about Kyle Larn in a bit. I just want to talk a little bit more about the age of the players. When you talked about the academies and the move towards that. One of the reasons that you're moving towards it is if you look at the, the NCAA and you look at like players that play four years and they're, they're coming out at 22, 23 years old, right? In soccer terms, that's ancient. Old. Yeah. Ancient. You're right. Um, I looked at the percentage of exceptional players that were drafted at 23 years of, of age or older, and it was only 12.5% of those players that were drafted as, that turned out to be exceptional were 23, and most of those 23-year-olds came in the early days of the, of the league in the first few drafts. Um, of, of late, it's skewing younger. Um, the vast majority of the exceptional players drafted uh, were uh, 20 41.1% of the exceptional players drafted were 20 years old. And uh, that at 20 years old also was tied for the least amount of failures. That's kind of your magic age is 20. Um, so when you talk about the NCAA, you know, you can draft NCAA players. That's fine, which is what Superdraft's about. But you probably don't want four-year NCAA players. Low Kyle Becker. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true. When you're just talking about the ancient and all that, uh, it's a system that's... Not antiquated, but it doesn't apply. It is antiquated, to be honest, because it doesn't apply to our, to, to the modern MLS or the MLS almost 3.0 going into next year with all the new teams. It, it doesn't apply. The players are too old. The value that you would get with a young player because his salary is not too high and the return of it is higher when he comes out of college, it, it's harder to find. And, uh, it's just the super draft. It's always so hard for me to really get into it. I got into it in 2012 and been disappointed ever since. And especially last year, for, at least for the impact, not one player still with the team. So, it, like you say, you're actually wondering if the teams itself do all their own due diligence to and all the research necessary. There's a couple of teams who always do it, right? There's a couple of teams who always get great draft pick and how they build their team. and But uh, I think nowadays with the academy system we're not going to get the same type of players but what's surprising me though we're talking about the academy system a player like Cal Lauren which he's from an academy system private one to say he still made his way into the draft and who knows might be number one yeah well yeah absolutely and I, I think that Cal Lauren's an interesting character and you're going to find uh, he's a big body a big body that he's going to really succeed in MLS if he chooses to go this way that way he hasn't yet signed as a, a, GA, uh, a, a GA contract and he mm-hmm. won't um, he won't be in MLS if he doesn't sign that. So uh, we'll see yet. But he is expected to, and he is expected to go at least in the in the top three. Um, I don't know if Montreal would pick him if he got there. You never know. But uh, that'd be kind of funny. A Toronto kid playing for Montreal. But at any rate, uh, I'll take him. Yeah, and he would be a lightning rod for TFC discontent if he did go to Montreal and, and play because he could have. You know, you could make the argument he could have been in the TFC academy quite easily. I mean, could have been a homegrown. Yeah. He's from Brampton, but uh, he chose to go a different route because he wanted to. Wanted to. Um, look, I think a lot of the resistance, like they're never going to drop the draft in, in an MLS perspective because it, it allows them to control the labor market. Mm-hmm. And we're going into a CBA negotiation. And I think this is what all – we're so used to drafts in North America, we don't question the philosophy behind them anymore. But that's what it's about. It's about not controlling these players' abilities to go places, so that therefore their value stays down and they're more affordable in their first contract. It's absolutely what it's about. It's also the reason that there some teams are resistant towards going full all-in on academies is they don't want to go part of the world market because, again, that's going to make them have to bid for players and have to, to develop players and get in that buying and selling market, which isn't North American's way because they want to – give the advantages to the corporate entity. And I'm getting a little bit into the sort of philosophies and kind of... No, but it's great because you're laying down the groundwork for the next couple of months. And that's just great because you're actually educating me because I'm not a big... I don't know a lot about the CBA talks and the inner working of the league itself behind closed doors. And you're showing it to us. So, no, I appreciate it and I really like it. So don't don't worry about it. Yeah, the... Look, you send a kid to the NCAA and use him as your primary... Use it as your primary development... A mechanism. You're not paying for that. Like MLS teams don't. It doesn't cost them any money. They send the. They don't even send them. Back in the past, these kids would just go to the NCAA, and they'd play a few years, and they'd go, "Yeah, that one's pretty good. He seemed to turn out well." And they had nothing to do with his development. They just would pick him out in a draft mechanism, and suddenly he was their property. And if he continued to excel, and they sold him on again, then suddenly they make money off of that for something they had nothing to do with in the development stage. Now, with the academies being required. 
uh, because they recognize at some level, the technical level in the USSF uh, and, and the CSA, I guess, uh, that they that they need to develop these kids younger and they're not going to get them younger if they rely on them going through college. So they, have, they now they have to spend money on it. And that irritates some MLS or owners. And if you look at the academies, they are vastly different from city to city in this league. They're required to have one, so they all have something. But some of them are basically in name only, where they're just letting the local academies do it and they're affiliating them. And they're just, yeah, just letting them wear the logo, that's it. Yeah, and, and there's really not a lot of investment going into it. And then others like Toronto, like New York to a certain extent, like Montreal, Vancouver, like, yeah. like Salt Lake, like Montreal. The, the Canadian ones have to put the academies in because – yeah. They just have to. Well, they have to because we need to develop Canadian players, not just for the national team, for our own domestic needs and the quota aspect within. Just MLS. for the teams itself, yeah, you're right. And I mean, it, MLS has all the power in that relationship too. They could wake up tomorrow and decide that the Canadian teams have to have eight players that are Canadian again. Uh, that was the case when Toronto came into the league, and that's the unspoken that no one in Vancouver, Montreal, likes to admit that it, that really was a handicap for TFC in the first year. Yeah. Uh, so at any rate, they could wake up tomorrow and they could do that again. So it's in the best interest of the Canadian teams to go full in on the development side uh, because it is the one advantage they have. And they, it, it, it's one thing that starts on an advantage, but it's the one thing that they do need to do. But it can be an advantage in this sense, and I'll leave it here. In the States, there remains this romantic attachment to the NCAA. There, your college sports team is something that's ingrained in you. In Canada, not so much. We don't put the same sort of emotional attachment to our university um, we don't follow college sport, university sport in the same way that Americans do. So there isn't this belief that this is the only way to it. Canadian, the Canadian, three Canadian teams have embraced the academy philosophy quicker than almost anyone else in the league. And certainly you see that in the USL pro teams. Three of the eight are in Canada. All three are in Canada because we just that just makes sense to us that that's the way to go. And we don't need to go through the college. And we have no – we don't care – whether University of Connecticut has a college soccer team. We have no emotional attachment to the continuation and the evolution of college soccer because we just don't give up bleep, right? We just uh, don't. To put, to put it even further than that, we don't even care about the education of our players. What I mean is when we look at a soccer player, what's important to us, it's on the field. We're not here to talk about the debate of education over sports and all that behind the scenes. We just want to have good soccer players and good value in players, and that's the end of the question. Yeah, and the... the- Lastly, and we're going to bring this to hockey for a second, the primary, the, the one sport that we do develop more players than anyone else is hockey, of course. And the model that we've used forever and ever and ever in hockey is the CHL model. The CHL model is, for those that don't know, the Canadian Hockey League is the, the an umbrella group for the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League, the Ontario Hockey League, and the Western Hockey League. These are the major, the greatest and the biggest junior hockey teams in the world, under 20 hockey teams in the world. Uh, the vast majority of NHL players come through there. Obviously, some come through for Europe, and a few come through the NCAA as well. But those options, and just having that double option, this is the best way to do it. The CHL is the equivalent of an MLS academy, and this yeah. traditionally is the best way to do it. You're going to lose your NCAA eligibility when you go in that. And the Canadian teams, they don't do anything to protect these kids' NCAA eligibility because they don't view it as a priority. I know from talking to people in Toronto that they tell them up front that we're going to treat you like a professional. We're going to do these things. And if at some point when you're 17 or 18, we may put you in a pro environment and that may may make you ineligible to play in the NCAA. But that's if we feel that's the best for your development, we're going to do that. You always have the choice to pull out. But for us, when you're in our player and you're in our player system right now, that's the way we're – and look – it's in the States, I think that they go out of their way to keep these kids to make sure that they have NCAA eligibility because that's what the, the, the players and the, and the families of the players demand. Up here, college is an afterthought. It's something you could do, and no one is blaming you if you do, but you understand that you're, you're going through a system that, that's not as good. And uh, we see that in hockey again where there are kids that go through instead of playing in the CHL, they play what we call Tier 2. Mm-hmm. Uh, which does protect their NCAA eligibility. They go down, they play a few years in the NCAA, and some of them come out and do okay. And that's the same kind of model that I think that the that the three Canadian MLS teams are using, that, that they can either play in the CHL, i.e. the academy, or you can go and you can play for a Sigma Academy um, here in Toronto, to use the example that Kyle Larn came through, and they're going to make sure you get to the NCAA, and if you're good enough, you'll still come out. You have a choice. Yeah, but the dedication of the 
just when you're looking at the result of the players coming out of both, either the uh, the, the draft or just use the hockey model for a second, the dedication of the junior team in the CHL is levels ahead of the NCAA. And you see that in the result of the players coming out. And we're starting to see that happening in Major League Soccer. What I mean is the players coming out of the academies are heads above all the ones coming out of the NCAA and the levels of play, the tactics, the, the form, the fitness itself. And for the players, when you want to really dedicate and truly that's the only thing you want to do, if you really want to put all your eggs in that basket, well, I think the academies are going to be the way to go going forward because they'll give you the environment and the support needed without not uh, wasting time on school. But that's, if that's not what you want to do, you can actually use that time and those resources for the soccer part of it. And that's why maybe eventually that's going to be the preferred model for it. Yeah, and uh, you know, in in the CHL and the hockey model, that they, they do require them to get an education, and they require them to to be in high school. Yeah, but they, after high school, it's all up to you. They're not going to ask you anything about it. They're yeah, not going to force you to go to college or CJEP and go back. Yeah, no, and they're not going to like if you get a, a D minus in your chem grade twelve chem class, they're not going to suspend you from the CHL team either. Like that's no, exactly. It's not your priority. They're under priority. They just require you to be there. They don't want you in the streets during the day. Yep. You know. <laughs> Basically, and, that's about it, yeah. Yeah, and they also want to, you know, they do provide programs, to be fair to them, um, that they kids that want to utilize them can for, for university after the fact if they don't mm-hmm. make it to the NHL. Exactly. If you, if you go through the CHL, you play three years in the CHL, you can get a scholarship to go to any Canadian university or any, any university period. Most of them end up going to the CAS. Uh, the Canadian University system, which CIS hockey is very good because of that. You have guys that went through the CHL that are that didn't make it for whatever that are going to play a few more years at, at the university level. Um, it's yeah, it is what it is, and I think that that's what we're seeing evolve here in Canada anyway when it comes to the MLS academies, and we're going to have less and less sort of a, attachment to this idea of a draft. But we have some draft picks this year, and we're going to play darts with the rest of them, and we'll see what comes out. Kevin, let's take a break. Santa baby, just slip a sable under the tree for me. Been an awful good girl, Santa baby, so hurry down the chimney tonight. And welcome back, and uh, it's Christmas time, uh, holiday times for all of you, so we're going to be tight in this last segment to keep us around an hour on this podcast. We don't want you uh, sitting there during Christmas dinner listening to the Two Saltoots podcast, though if you are doing that, I want you to tweet about it because that would be awesome. And I hope you have your glass of alcoholic eggnog with you, a Christmas tradition for me. Yes, there you go. I hate eggnog. Ugh. I can drink it like water during this time. I buy it by the gallon. <laughs> okay, well, I'll be having a Diet Pepsi. I don't actually, I, I, you know, ironically, for those who know me, I, I actually prefer to get through the holidays without any alcohol in me whatsoever until New Year's Eve because um, that will prevent me from getting in jail after a, a, a family meal. And we'll leave it at that. <laughs> you don't want to be in jail in the holidays. It's depressing. Got to keep an even keel. Got to survive the day. Merry Christmas. <laughs> All right. Uh, speaking of Merry Christmas, it is going to be a Merry History Christmas for Danielle Henry. And this is awesome news. It did legitimately. I just smiled when I heard it. And we what? broke it on the two on the two solitudes in the last segment. So yeah, and this is good news for him. Like a lot of people, Daniel Henry has a game that still needs to be refined a little bit. But when you look at the stuff that he does well, he does it really well. He is very athletic. Uh, his technical skills have improved a great deal. If you look at his ability to read the play and all that sort of stuff, it is much better now than it was when he was a 17-year-old. And that's that's a key I want to play up there. He made his professional debut at 17. The kid just turned 21. He's one of TFC's all-time leading appearance uh, leaders. Uh, he's scored goals in MLS as a teenager. He's represented the national team as a teenager. This is why he got the work permit. He was a 17-year-old professional. That was almost 100 professional appearances before he turned 21 he's a legitimate prospect and in the premier league they're going to look at this they're going to look at his physicality they're going to see that he's made some mistakes it's he still needs to rein his game in a little bit more he still needs to understand some when to not leave his feet and he needs to sort of learn these things so he can be a complete player but at this age as a He's coming in at them as already established professional at 21 with all of these skills that they can they can work with. He's a legit prospect for them, and I think all of us here in Canada should be 
on the streets right now, waving flags. <laughs> waving hammers. No, we have to be waving hammers. We don't have much, but this is much. And he was – he chronically – he is the ultimate example of how confirmation bias can skew how we think of a player because a lot of fans in Toronto will remember two or three plays that represent less than 2% of his body of work, point at that 2% and go, he will never be anything because he did that. <laughs> and he signed for a Premier League team that's in the top 10. And we all – I knew – like, I mean, we've been trying to – Tell this all the year. We knew he went to West Ham last year. West Ham wanted to sign him last year. That's why he went to Cyprus. Let's take a quick second, Kevin, and I'll explain the Cyprus stuff to the best. Go ahead, because I was I was bewildered. I was like, how can you sign with a club in Cyprus? Never announced it. Announced it after, and then he's going to London. I was baffled today too. Because having him in Cyprus allowed them to buy property in Cyprus, which will then allow them to start the countdown clock ticking to him being eligible to get a Cyprus passport, which would then make him part of the EU, which would then mean he doesn't need a work permit at all. That would have paid a factor in today's uh, today's meeting. So he has a year already in Europe, technically, even though he played in Canada. He technically has lived in Europe for a year now. He is all in the process of trying to get that EU passport. That probably played a role in today's work permit uh, meeting where they said, look, we're six months away from having this guy get a passport anyway. We just want to get him in, the, in early in January so that we can loan him out. That's probably what's going to happen, folks. He's probably going to get immediately loaned to a championship team or to a League One team even uh, to get some playing time for the rest of the year. And, and his chance to be in the premiership is probably going to start next year. Um, and that's great for him. It's great for his development. Uh, uh, and it's great with a segment that we just wrapped up about development in the academy and draft. There's, there's an example of an homegrown academy player for TFC that signed with a Premier League team in the span of not even f- five, six years. Dwayne, if I would have told you that when Daniel Henry made his professional debut, that not even six years later he'll be in the EPL, you would have called me crazy. Yeah. No, I don't know. If, yeah, I might have. <laughs> it might have been worse than crazy. You would have locked me up and be like, hey, he needs to be in situation size. Yeah, well, I think more of the point is that without the TFC Academy here, this kid could have, like many other Canadians before, fallen through the cracks and been playing for, I don't know, like the Brantford Galaxy right now or something, right? Like that's that's what would have happened in the past. There just wouldn't have been an element for there. Uh, look, if you've ever – Daniel Henry is is big for a soccer – he's soccer huge. Like yeah. – He's their string pole because they're all, all any soccer player you ever see in the flesh skinny because think about what they do for a living. But they in any run. <laughs> yeah, but he's he's got big shoulders. He's strong body. He's he's a very very large for a soccer player, and that strength is going to play a role. And I actually make the argument in terms of a lot of people. You know, this, a lot of the people that dismissed Daniel Henry outright are still going to be dismissing him right now. They're just going to think this is hilarious and West Ham are idiots, and this kid's going to be just embarrassed over there. He's not going to be embarrassed. Um, it's. I think his game is better suited for the English game. I think there's an in MLS there's an element of inconsistency in the um, in the, the referee. Well, uh, even in the play itself, from team to team, there's a difference of type of styles of play. In DPL, it's all a bit more consistent from team to team. Yeah, and well, his teammates around him, he's going to have more support in the back line. Better not talent surrounding him too. Yeah, he's not going to be relied upon so much to, to sort of make that last dash tackle. Uh, yeah. He can just play to his strengths a little bit more. He won't, he won't be exposed as the last defender like he was for Toronto a couple of times this season, which those moments stand out when you think about the guy. And that's why some perception, some people's perception of him are biased in that way, too. Absolutely. So I think that I, I, I said this all year. I do think he's going to be um, successful on some level in, in the Premier League. Uh, look, Will he be there right away? I, you know, probably not. Uh, as I said a minute ago, I, I suspect that we'll see an immediate loan for him. Um, I'm looking forward to this, and uh, I think it's great for Danielle and it's great for the Canadian national team, and it's just the best sort of Christmas news that we've heard in a while. Um, real quickly before we wrap up, Pedro Morales resigns with the Whitecaps. Some nice bit of, bit of business there. We have to give them credit for uh, for getting him out of that DP slot, getting him back. Uh, he's a player that they really, really relied upon a lot last year that they would have uh, really had difficulty uh, replacing had he left. But they did find him on a number that he wanted and he uh, did uh, did want to stay I, by all accounts. So that that's good there. Uh, Kevin, the impact did something small? Yes, they s- – you know, we talked about the the red draft number two, re-entry draft stage two, last show. 
And I would talk about like Anson Buttle and those type of players that I wish Montreal at least went for. But no, it was the one player everybody knew Montreal was going to go get because he's a former uh, former Chicago player. Frank Klopas always loved him. Talk about Bakari Sumare. And unfortunately, uh, again, uh, when Montreal signed Klopas as a coach, I received notes from Chicago saying, you'll regret this move. I received a note this week, again, from uh, Scott Fenwick from Chicago saying that, You'll regret that move even more than the Klopas move. So, yeah, that doesn't bode too well for now. All right. On that cheerful note, Kevin. <laughs> I have a great holidays. Merry Christmas, folks. Check it out. Old man Marley. Who is he? You ever heard of the South Bend Shovel Slayer? No. That's him. Back in 58... Murdered his whole family and half the people on his block with the snow shovel. Been hiding out in this neighborhood ever since. Well, if he's a shovel slayer, how come the cops don't arrest him? Not enough evidence to convict. They never found the bodies. But everyone around here knows he did it. Now it'll just be a matter of time before he does it again. What's he doing now? He walks up and down the streets every night. Salting the sidewalks. Maybe he's just trying to be nice. No way. See the garbage can full of salt? That's where he keeps his victims. The salt turns the bodies into mummies. Wow. Yeah, look out! 